Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back again a very special friend of the show, the artist laureate of Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space, Mr. Ron Gross. Ron is an incredibly talented and prolific graphic artist who's skilled in both traditional and digital rendering techniques. Many of his beautiful creations employ a distinctive hybrid production methodology that he personally developed. Ron's Lost in Space-related works include assorted box art illustrations for both Polar Lights and Mobius models. In association with Kevin Burns of Synthesis Entertainment, Ron also designed the official 45th and 50th Lost in Space Anniversary logos. Fans of the series are most familiar with his stunning calendars and poster art, based on the original Irwin Allen television properties, and his officially licensed, limited edition, Lost in Space Deluxe trading card set from Monster Wax, which features his own dazzling artwork, as well as a fascinating series in-universe storyline that was released in 2019. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Gross. Ron grew up in Aurora, Illinois, and resides in the greater Chicago area to this day. After retiring from a distinguished career as a sales executive, Ron's fully devoted himself to his passion for creating art. When we spoke with Ron last time, we focused on his then newly released book, Fantasy Worlds Beyond, The Irwin Allen Art of Ron Gross. Published in spring 2021, this beautiful art book burnished his well-deserved fame among serious Lost in Space aficionados. And now, Ron has followed up his many accomplishments with yet another fantastic book, Lost in Space, The Initial Adventures. More than five decades in the making, this richly illustrated novelization of the multi-episode story arc that launched the series contains a variety of lost scenes, as well as Ron's own speculative exploration of the mysteriously planned but never developed sixth episode in the story arc titled Refuge of the Damned, a topic that has intrigued some Lost in Space fans for years. So today, we're going to speak in depth with Ron about his fabulous new book and how he managed to make this childhood passion a reality. So sit back, relax, and enjoy 
Act Four of our compelling, ongoing conversation with gifted Lost in Space graphic artist and author, Mr. Ron Gross. Hey, Ron Gross, my friend. Welcome back to Alpha Control. How are you doing, sir? Doing well, Lane. I guess here we go again, huh? <laughs> yeah, here we go again. And, you know, it's funny. I, I cannot believe it's been a year <laughs> since we last had you on the show. Of course, last time we talked about your incredible, at that time it was newly released, art book titled uh, Fantasy Worlds Beyond, the Irwin Allen Art of Ron Gross. We had a lot of fun going over that one, and uh, uh, that was such a big success for you. But, uh, you know, I got to admit something, Ron. At the end of that conversation, when I asked you what was next on your agenda, you were a little bit evasive about it, which, I don't know, it kind of had me a little bit nervous. Was that your swan song, so to speak? But uh... <laughs> No, no. I, I, I tell you, I was evasive for a reason. First of all, there is a project that Kevin always wanted me to do that I have been avoiding. Um, he wanted me to do an adult coloring book for Lost in Space. Ah, okay. And in today's world, uh, that kind of a stress reliever is not a bad idea. Let's just put it that way. Sure. But I was procrastinating on that and putting it off, not because I didn't believe in the product. I think it's a great idea. But the process involved in getting something like that done, it's all mechanical. Mm -hmm. You know, to dumb down my artwork and do line drawings, whether I do it by hand or by some digital method, it's a very boring mechanical process and i just didn't want to do it <laughs> I'll be honest with you you know yeah but that's the reason in the meantime i was thinking now what else could i do you know as a next project that i didn't share with lane i didn't even i hadn't even thought of this at that time you know then i reread the early sections of my first book and it just hit me like a ton of bricks I'm like my god you talked about all this stuff you did when you were a kid you know why not just do that again and finish it this time for crying out loud so that's what we did wow and that's the impetus for this new book uh, the surprise involved here was the time frame. I expected to put this book out in the fall. I was projecting an October 16th launch date for obvious reasons. <laughs> That's right. a very important date for Lost in Space fandom. And I got going on this thing, Lane, and I swear to God, I just couldn't mm. stop. And then another thing I failed to take into account was the fact that when it came to the uh, formatting of the book per Amazon protocols, I had just done all that. So plugging this in was no big deal. And it went like clockwork. And before you know it, I'm starting to realize I could get this thing out in time for Wonderfest. Mm -hmm. So here we are a year later talking about it and, uh, you know, full speed ahead. Well, yes, here we are talking about it. And let's don't bury the lead here. The title of this new book is Lost in Space, The Initial Adventures. My congratulations, Ron, because like I said last time, you just keep outdoing yourself. And Thanks, Paul, I really want to dig into this because, of course, you were kind enough, like last time, to give me an advanced PDF copy of the book. And it is really, really captivating, including all the artwork. I mean, it's not an art book per se, but it's chock full of your wonderful images and artwork and everything, including the front and back cover, which uh, they do look slightly familiar to me, but they're beautiful. Talk about that. <laughs> Well, you know, the front cover is the poster I put out called From Earth to the Unknown. And it's the mm. same image I used for the uh, trading card set I did with Kirk. And how could I not use that? Because that just says it all. It's a classic. Yeah. In terms of the early story arc of Lost in Space, there's just nothing better I could come up with. So, uh, you know, it wasn't for lack of uh, ambition to do something new. It's just, I don't think I could top that for this intended purpose. Yeah. The back cover, I cheated a little bit because you'll notice I used one of my favorite posters in yours too, as I recall, called The Caves Have Eyes. Mm. And uh, that's not, you know, exactly represented in the text because I didn't address those two aliens observing the Robinsons from that perspective on the frozen sea. 
I did talk about that later in another section of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, that's speculative. Right, right. You're absolutely correct. That was one of my favorites, and we talked about that last time because uh, I just always found that fascinating. So I'm glad you— Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I I agree. That's one of my favorites, too. And and I originally intended to put that in the novel like that. And I thought to myself, you know, I I have this sixth episode that's entirely new. That's speculative enough. I don't want to stretch it. You know, I'm going to pretty much stick to the way things were for the first five episodes with the addition of the lost scenes that I reinserted, which well, I'm sure we'll talk about as time goes on here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to dig into it. Uh, <laughs> enter if you dare, as they say, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I described your first book as the uh, chronicle of the artistic life of Ron Gross, going all the way back to your childhood. But this project really does have its roots in your early life, doesn't it? Give us the background on this book. You kind of started to touch on it, but flesh that out a little bit for us. How did this all come about? Well, you know, I was so enthralled with the show when it first started. I, I felt compelled at age 11 to do something more than just watch it every week. So as a budding young artist, mm. I decided to start what I called my personal Lost in Space book. Right. And it was a recapping of the episode plot lines, you know, sprinkled with some illustrations. And I had three versions of that, as it turned out. The, the first one, I started when, I, you know, when the show first came on at age 11. And that one I have not shown publicly because it looks like an 11 year old did it <laughs> okay <laughs> some of the illustrations leave a lot to be desired and it, you know maybe someday i'll cut around to showing that but the other two you know when i got a little bit older at age 12 13 14 it's not anything like the artwork i'm doing today but it does show a certain uh, devotion to the show and a certain technical competence for that age i think so i call this book the fourth incarnation of that project because there were three when i was a kid this is now the fourth one, which finally finishes it up. Okay, this is, this uh, is the culmination of all that past work, all these decades later, if you will. But that's how I think about it anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, it's nice because this is the subject of your preface, really talking about the origins of the book and those three editions. I think we mentioned this last time, but I'm not sure. But I think it's just so cool that you've held on to those books all these years and included some of those images in the preface. But uh, there's a couple of them that just stand out to me. For example, there was one, you've even got the date on here, the Rubberoid from 1969. Now that is really, I'm so happy you put that one in there. I love that. Talk about that. Well, that was a copy of one of the backdrops from the Mattel Swish and Go Lost in Space toy, which I never owned. I explained that in the book. Uh-huh. I never owned that toy, so I had no reference other than a really tiny feature in Sears catalog. I was given a choice that Christmas. My parents said, either you can get the Rotojet gun and the robot, or you can get the Mattel Switch and Go, because that was more expensive. Ah. So I went for the two-for-one deal. <laughs> so, And by the way, I still own the uh, Rotojet gun. I've got the box for that after all these years. I've kept that, too. Okay. Well, I want to talk about that box later, but I think I'm going to save that to another <laughs> section. Okay. If I forget, you remind me. But as usual, Ron, you uh, scratched a, a nostalgia itch that I just got to pause for a second. You mentioned the Sears catalog wish book that came out at Christmas time. Boy, you talk about something from another age. You my sister and I, we used to just, we couldn't wait for that to show up. And I mean, I know, you know, when I was the age you're talking about, 9, 10, 11 years old, I would just pour over that thing and look again and again, circle the things that I wanted. And I usually put four or five big circles on there and hope that maybe one or two of them would show up under the tree. And it was always so much fun when that came. It was kind of like, you know, the annual version of the thrill you felt when the TV guide showed up. You know what I mean? (laughs) 
I know. I mean, and kids today have no clue. No. <laughs> I mean, it's just like our threshold of satisfaction was so much lower back in those days. I mean, oh. I was happy with a yo-yo for crying out loud, you know? It's true. It's true. These lost in space toys, I mean, when they, and they were late in materializing, by the way, you know, the stuff that I just mentioned all occurred in 66, not 65. It was a year later that this stuff came out. So, uh, yeah, I had to wait. And I was almost at an age at that point where, uh, you know, most guys wouldn't care that much about it. I was 12, 13, you know, but I did. I love that stuff. I just left it up. Mm-hmm. Well, the rubberoid is very creepy looking. I had to go online and check out that switch and go box art you're talking about. And there he is. He's kind of lumbering out of the Jupiter too, almost. I think he's on the ramp or something like that, but it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> cool image. It really is. And like well, thanks. Yeah. That, that was one of my title pages. Of course I had entered if you dare, that was the main title page. That was another one in my uh, third incarnation of my childhood project back in those days. And, uh, uh, you notice I used the cast postcard on the cover on the third edition. So it's fun to look back at that. Also, Take a look at that page that I included that is the contents. I mean, that was so yellow, I had to color correct it. <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah. All right. What beautiful penmanship you have. I went to tell you. I, well, I, you know what? <laughs> I don't anymore. I mean, people say my handwriting is worse than the worst doctor's penmanship they've ever seen. But back in those days, you know, I, yeah. And I gave that a certain reverence and a certain attention. And uh, I think it shows there. So that's why I wanted to share that, too. No, it's great. I love it. I like the inner, if you dare, it's got the fifth dimension alien on there. You really capture the essence of it. And what's so crazy about these images, I'm going on and on about this, is that you know, you didn't really have VCRs or screen caps or there's nope. no internet to look these things up. This is all from your memory. You have an amazing visual uh, sense in your mind. I think that's very cool. Well, thanks. Yeah, I got the derelict a little bit off. That's a little bit wrong, but the, the, I think the shading and the, the light and shadow kind of makes up for that. And for the first time I showed the other version of the derelict, I actually did a transparent overlay so the entrapping uh, veins could be shown both open and closed. I mean, I was a real nutbag back in those days, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, this is an early passion. You know, that's you're going to be like it was. that, you know, and it's awesome. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, it seemed to me like there was something else behind this. I mean, your prologue, you kind of go into the fact that you're setting the stage for this novelization, which is the core of the book. Right. Why don't you talk about what it was that really, you know, sort of motivated you to do this book, other than just trying to get it finally to the version that you had originally envisioned. Sure. Well, Lane, it's very well put because there was another motivation. We've just experienced three seasons of a fantastic reboot of Lost in Space with Netflix. Sure. And it's a project that I support wholeheartedly. It is an example of science fiction of the highest order, but it isn't quite the Lost in Space that we grew up with, is it? Yeah. And I'm sure that Kevin would be the first to agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure what happened was they had to do marketing research. Right. And the research came back and said, if you want to make this successful, this is what you have to do. You have to change all these things and you have to satisfy today's 14-year-olds. You know, so what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to just ignore it? I don't think so. Mm. So it became Kevin's job at that point to thread the needle, to try to take care of you know, those who have the passion for the original series and appeal to today's audience at the same time. And that could not have been an easy task. Right. And I will say that if it weren't for Kevin, God only knows what we would have wound up with. Mm -hmm. But there was always a need, or I think a passion for a return to something more classic. You know, if we can't have that in a movie form or video form, 
then we can at least have it in this particular format. And that's what the motivation for this book was. Let me just also digress for a second. Speaking of other Lost in Space incarnations. Okay. Let's go back to the 1998 movie. Okay. <laughs> which I think you'll uh, ascertain in a very short order that I was not a great fan of that movie. <laughs> okay. Right. right. Um, but this notion that you can just throw out a few incidental concessions and satisfy the hardcore fans, for example, that vehicle, or if you want to call it a vehicle, or uh, called the Jupiter One. All right. Yeah. Magnificent design. Yeah. And I thought that was great. And then all of a sudden we find out it's just nothing but a containment dam for the real Jupiter 2. Gets out in space, breaks apart, and then this hideous-looking egg thing pops out. And that's supposed <laughs> to be the new Jupiter 2, right? Right. I mean, that thing looked like a fugitive from a silly putty factories. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like we've got to be different, you know? <laughs> right. And, and so these incidental concessions are not sufficient. People want something that harkens back to the original. All right? You know, I'll tell you something else. I'm not so sure that we couldn't have it in video form because if you don't mind my digressing just for a second, is this okay? Go ahead. Go for it, man. <laughs> There's a new TV series starting up in a few days. I'm sure by the time this airs, it will already have begun called Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Mm -hmm. And we had a little preview of that during the second season of Star Trek Discovery. And at the end of that season, when Captain Pike reboards the Enterprise, you get a look at what the uh, Enterprise bridge looks like. And it is updated. It is technologically advanced by comparison with the old version, mm -hmm. but does it also harken back to the old? Yes, it does, I think. It's obviously recognizable. It's a very tastefully done recreation, in my opinion. So if this series is successful, and I think it will be, then maybe there is a case to be made for tastefully updating something, but maintaining the original uh, premise. Mm -hmm. So, And I'm not knocking the Netflix series. I mean, I don't blame them for what they did. Again, I'm a big supporter. But just maybe, just maybe, some of the marketing research is wrong. Right. So we'll see. Well, I'll just say two things about the other properties that you mentioned. Number one, on the 98 movie, there were some things I thought that were pretty neat about it. I liked seeing the cast cameos. Of course, we missed Bill and Jonathan. And I agree with you about the art design choices that they made. It was kind of a tease to see that Jupiter One ship on the launching pad like yeah, that. I thought, yeah, I thought oh, that was yeah. pretty cool. You know, here we go. But, you know, they had to be different, like we said. I think the best yeah. thing that happened as a result of that was I think it did rekindle interest in Lost in Space and it did spur some classic series, you know, merchandise and things like that eventually. Well, Jonathan was going to all these events and making a ton of money without even being in it. Right. You know, and as far as about the casting, I mean, uh, they didn't want to cast Bill in the role of the older Will Robinson because they were afraid that his familiarity might detract from the integrity of the movie. Uh, what movie? What integrity? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. my opinion. Anyway. I mean, like I said, though, I was glad at least we got, you know, a rekindled interest in merchandising. What would the model kits and whatnot that came out from the classic shows? So that was... That, that absolutely happened. Yes. And of course, the uh, timing of that movie was the whole uh, impetus for my finishing my Jupiter 2 scratch build and becoming involved with Polar Lights. There's an example right there. Absolutely. You know, that absolutely. model kit was a derivative of that whole time frame, that whole thing. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. so I'm very grateful in that respect. And you're absolutely right about that. But again, people long for something that harkens back more to the original. So uh, I kind of took it upon myself to give it a try. I thought that some of my illustrations, you know, indicate what certain scenes might have looked like had CGI been available back then, you know, with, for example, the um, 
persistent permanent features of the two moons in the background, which I use over and over again, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, the changing of the sky colors, um, little things like that, that you'd never see in the show, but it can certainly be done in 2D. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll just mention one other thing with regard to the Netflix show. I enjoyed it too. I thought it's a great science fiction show, but, and I think I've mentioned this to multiple people, so if I'm repeating myself, forgive me, but I kind of think they could have done it and not called it Lost in Space, you know, and you wouldn't have had the same, (laughs) you wouldn't have had some of these conflicted feelings you have about classic versus the reboot. But in its defense, I'll say at least the tone of the Netflix series stayed closer to Irwin's original vision of Lost in Space as exemplified by the pilot and the uh, five-episode story arc. That's the core of your book. So, you know, unlike yes. the original broadcast series, they ne- they had humor, but they never kind of veered into campiness or anything like that. So I'll give them kudos for that, you know. So, I'll give them kudos for a lot. I yeah. love the show. But uh, again, it's just acknowledging the fact that there's a large contingency of Lost in Space fans that wants to see something closer. So my opinion has evolved on this, Lane. I think you can tell. You know, there was a time when I wouldn't have said anything like this. But uh, as time goes on, I'm beginning to realize that there is a hunger for that. And if we can't have it in one form, maybe we can have it in another. Well, now we do. We do. So we might as well dive into it since it is the heart of your book. Let's discuss what you call the initial story arc, the first five episodes of Lost in Space. You know, that's the reluctant stowaway all the way through the Hungry Sea. Give us the background on that and what makes it so special to you and other fans. Well, first of all, all of these stories were penned by Shimon Winselberg. Right. That's the guy to whom I dedicated the book. To me, this guy is a masterful writer. Uh, but it is a mini-series, if you will, that was intended to kick off a series ah. with a continuing story arc. And basically, the way it was derived was the uh, original pilot was subdivided into five sections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is because the powers that be began to realize that you know, we needed some kind of interaction and conflict. And so the additional characters of Dr. Smith and the robot were added fairly late in the game, you know. Not to say that they weren't considered earlier, but the actual addition of those characters was very late. Right. And as such, it required a restructuring of the early story arc of the pilot itself to eventually form the first five episodes. And that's what this is all about. And when we get past the first five, or in my case, the first six, which we'll discuss, I'm sure, a little bit later, then each episode represented a story in itself for the most part. And many of those were still very worthwhile. But uh, we got past the first half of the first season, and we got the Batman influence involved, and (laughs) then the world changed. It did. It did. Well, I like how you structured this part of the book, the novelization. You've got a chapter devoted to each of those five episodes, and the six, as you say, we'll get to later. But this is not just a line-for-line written version of what we saw broadcast. You've really fleshed these chapters out with a lot of fun details, of course, your illustrations. And there's some things that we didn't hear or see on TV in there, aren't there? Yes, there are. There are a number of reinserted scenes. And let me explain that because, um, well, first of all, let me say this. When people first start to read the novelization part of it, they're going to notice there isn't a whole lot different in the first three episodes. In the first episode, that's pretty much stock. You know, I had an option 
to add a scene. There was a scene in one of the scripts where Dr. Smith approached the Jupiter 2 and there was an electrified fence and mm-hmm. he had a woman who was with him check the fence and she got fried, I guess. <laughs> oh, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that was his way of entering the restricted area as an unauthorized individual at that time. And I thought to myself, you know, the episode is named after this character. He has the stage to himself for almost the first half of the first episode. That's kind of enough, you know? Mm. So I didn't put that in. I left that out. Okay. The first episode is pretty much what you see on TV with some interesting descriptions, you know, to complement it, of course. Mm-hmm. It doesn't read like a script. It reads like a novel. The second and third episodes each have one little thing added, and they're from scripts, uh, versions of scripts. There's a one-line thing in episode two and also in episode three, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'm going to let you find them. Okay? <laughs> good, good. But then when we get to episode four, that's when we have some fun with adding deleted scenes. And there are a number of interesting choices. By the way, here are the rules of the game that I employed. Okay. If it existed in any version of any script, it's considered canon, and it's fair game. Okay. Okay. That said, there were times when there were choices involved because different revisions of different scripts had alternative things going on. Yes. So when we get to the section about the giants, uh, there were a number of scenes that were deleted. In some cases, they were scripted but not filmed. In some cases, they were filmed and eventually cut. Mm. But there was one scene with Penny you know, out in the wilderness when she allegedly encountered the giant that I did not use because there was another choice for that scene to expand that scene. And I'll tell you why I didn't use it. Apparently, this involved the giant coming up to her and her reaction was, oh, do you live here? I mean, come on. I mean, I can see her with that kind of youthful innocence in dealing with an ethereal voice like my friend, Mr. Nobody. But if a 40-foot monster comes up to you, you're not going to say, you know, that interaction is just too much to swallow for me. Right. So I didn't care for that scene. And then she gives him a flower. You know, picture the scene here. The giant is, you know, basically romping through the wilderness with his flower, seeking his next victim. <laughs> yeah. It, it just it, didn't set well with me. Yeah, it's incongruous. I mean, it's we're not supposed to think of the giant as being, a, you know, a, a warm, cuddly teddy bear. He's supposed to be a threat. Exactly. Or, right. So that giant can take his uh, flower and stick it where the sun don't shine, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that scene was ever filmed, though, correct? As far as uh, we no, know. it was not. Yeah. Uh, Phil Hamilton recently did an animated version, and he did a masterful right. job, by the way. So he did. I'm certainly not knocking his work. It's just beautiful. It's just the entire premise of that particular scene. Then the giant takes the flower to the Jupiter II, and the contrast and treatment between the two is supposed to be uh, the focal point here, where Doctor Smith uh, orders the robot to uh, go after him. And you know, I do have that scene in the novel, but it's deferred later in the uh, storyline because. It got to the point where there were too many giant encounters in rapid succession to the point where it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. So I deferred a scene like that to episode five, and I got away with that. That's the only real deviation from the original premise outside of adding the deleted scenes. Yeah. I, the only thing I can think that they were thinking with that scene with Penny and the giant is that it sort of reminds me of the scene with Frankenstein and the little girl at the lake. But then again, what happens to the little girl, right? Exactly. <laughs> we can't have Penny being drowned in the <laughs> third well, episode. You know, I want to give the character of Penny Robinson more credit than that. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, that's where I'm coming from. I mean, sure. uh, she's not five years old. You know, she's, no. she's a little bit older than that. So right, exactly. So anyway, that's an example of making a choice. Now there was another way to expand that scene with Penny Robinson out in the wilderness. There was another creature that is described in the script for the unaired pilot. And that's the one I chose to use. Ah, okay. Yeah. So that's where that came from. Yeah. Then let's talk about the famous aerial battle scene. Okay. Yeah. Now this is a, a real enigma. Now this is a funny situation because, you know, I looked all over and I contacted some really credible people and nobody can find any revision of any script where that scene is included. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, then I referred to uh, Mark Cushman's book, where he talks about the fact that it was filmed during the filming of the pilot. Okay, so right. if it's filmed during the filming of the pilot, then chances are it wasn't in the script. Mm. Here's what I think happened. Okay, I think Irwin Allen woke up one morning and simply decided to film this scene for contingency use. Ah, I think that's all it ever was. Right. I do not think it was in any script. If someone has a script with that scene, I'd love to know about it. So feel free to contact me. You know, but I think that this was something that he decided would be kind of cool. And he uh, simply ordered it filmed and then it sat there and was never used. And the funny thing about it is that the scene was used as a symbol for the show in many ways. Yeah, you talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a feature in Newsweek magazine the month before the show came on the air. I mean, that theme was also used on the Bill Bradley board game and on the uh, box for the uh, Lost in Space trading card set marked by Tops. Mm-hmm. So it was all over the place. And yeah, it was never in the show. Well, now it's in your novel, and it's beautifully represented both in the narrative and in the artwork that you have there. And we've seen those stills, but it would be the holy grail to actually see the actual footage, which I don't think anyone's been able to find. Well, Kevin told me one time that he looked for it all over the place and could not locate it. So whatever that means. But yeah, by the way, it's not hard to figure out where that scene goes. I mean, unless you're going to write another entirely new scene with the jetpack. There's only one scene with a jetpack, and so I just gave away where that thing is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you do have that, and you have also, like you mentioned, the Cyclops attack on the Jupiter-2 campsite, which I'm not sure exactly where that was represented in the scripts, because you're basically using scripts to flesh out some of these unseen <laughs> events, right? That's why you're calling it canon, like you said. You're going back and finding right. these. Well, I mean, I'm using the episodes themselves and then adding to it. Now, right. the scene with the giant attack in the Jupiter 2, obviously, if I defer that to episode 5, which I did, mm. it has to be changed a little bit because it was originally in episode 4. Now, again, this if I put it there, and you got one giant encounter right after another, it just does make sense. you know. Mm-hmm. So if you put it in episode 5 where I did, you can't have Dr. Smith ordering the robot to go after the giant because he's not there. He was sent out in Smith's so-called errand of mercy, right? Right. So the way I handled that was I put in the text that he thought about having the robot do that. But then he remembered that uh, (laughs) that was not an option. Right. So he had to take care of business himself. But when the giant appears at the campsite during that scene, he's not carrying a flower. He's carrying something else. Mm -hmm. You know, boulders and giants go together to me. So (laughs) (laughs) that's all I'm going to say. So, yeah. Oh, that's a great piece of artwork, too. That's really cool. And there was a little nugget in your book. You mentioned the fact that a lot of people have speculated that large scale, I can't remember how large it was, the large scale Jupiter 2 miniature, not the full size uh, replica, but the large scale. What was that, like six to 10 feet in diameter or something? 10 feet, yeah. That was maybe intended to be used for for that scene. Yeah, that was built for a twofold purpose. 
one of them being for the scene. The other, they were contemplating uh, using the chariot hatch, so you could see the chariot coming out of the underside of the Jupiter too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that would open up a can of worms because you're dealing with size issues there that don't make a whole lot of sense, you know. So uh, I think uh, eventually the logical has prevailed. They decided just not to address that. Right. Well, one of the other elements that you feed back into this story arc is the whole concept of the hieroglyphics inside the lost city and their special purpose. Talk about that briefly, if you can, without giving too much away. (laughs) (laughs) This is toward the end of episode four and then well into episode five. But here we have the revelation of who these uh, aliens are that pop up later. Okay, they're called the Illuminated Ones. They are an indigenous race of that planet. And... uh, these hieroglyphics describe how they had been in this epic, ages-old conflict with the race of giants and uh, how they were humbled and scattered, quote-unquote, and different factions of the uh, intelligent race then were created on the planet, uh, each having to fend for themselves. And it's a whole mythology, you know, mm-hmm. that was completely omitted. Now, if you look closely at the episode, you'll see the hieroglyphic of the giant on the wall. Oh, yes. It's very easy to miss. But it's there. Of course, I made a pictorial statement out of that, you know. So that's basically the entire impetus for episode six, which they conveniently just left out. Uh, I think what might have happened there was the budget concerns. But uh, be that as it may, episode six was never filmed. It was sketched out in what was called a story springboard, which is a kind of a general outline for an impending script. But that was all we had. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you added that image from the hieroglyphics of the giant. You put that right at the beginning of chapter five, which is, of course, about the hungry sea. And I love that because, like you say, it's real easy to miss. I have watched that episode so many times and the pilot, and I could never quite tell what they were looking at because you're only seeing it. um, Well, it's in black and white for one thing, and you're only seeing it for a second, and it's sort of illuminated with the flashlight, I think. And it's really hard to tell what it is exactly, but thankfully you've got it here in color and it really stands out. <laughs> That's kind of worth the price of admission, if you ask me, because it adds a whole uh, a whole nother level of atmosphere to this whole scene. One of the reasons it's easy to miss is because it's so stylized. Correct. This is not a, a realistic depiction of a giant. This is somebody's stylization of it, and heavily so. I mean... You really have to think about what you're seeing when you look at this thing. But if you think about it, for someone drawing hieroglyphics thousands of years ago, that probably would have been the way they would have done it. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you look at the Egyptian hieroglyphics; they're not exactly, yeah. You know, they're not anatomically correct images of human beings or the animals they're depicting. They're very stylized, which is stylized and almost juvenile looking. But uh, you know, I've often thought that that uh, seven, I think it was about a seven meg segment in the. Uh, Dead City Ruins was so reminiscent of Kevin's Ancient Aliens uh, series today, you know, mm-hmm. uh, almost like it was foretelling that series, you know, but uh, I really think they could have done so much more with that concept, you know, that seven minutes is all we ever got. Right, right. Well, they left us wanting more. They obviously left you wanting more for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many great images in this, and you kind of touched on some of the things I was going to mention, like the color palettes that you use in space and in the skies and things like that. You really add a whole nother level of complexity to some of these things. So you're getting, as you said, it's a fleshed out retelling of the first five episodes with some missing details added, but it just goes along with your artwork so beautifully. And that one-eyed giant on the hieroglyphics is just one example of that. Uh, Some of these things are so great. Some of them 
I could swear I was looking at some of the additional ones that I don't think I've seen in posters or calendars or anything. They almost look like screen grabs that have sort of been stylistically colored or whatever. But They are, yeah, I'll, I'll explain that, Lane. Yes, uh, I didn't have time to do full-blown illustrations to complement this thing for the most part. So what I did was I did do screen grabs, but my method of colorizing is not the same as you know, other people to do this. I have a, there's a manual element to it that involves some physical rendering. Sure. So it's a little bit different, but yeah, I think the overall mix of images, which some of my more elaborate ones combined with these uh, simpler ones, that remains quite compelling. But there are a couple of, uh, actually they're not screen grabs, they're promotional stills that I have in color, you know, I think for the first time and ones I'm particularly proud of are these two. The first one being uh, when Maureen needs to be revived after uh, the freezing tube. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that one now. <laughs> yeah, that's a promotional image that was in black and white. and uh, Very iconic. People, yeah, full color version of that. And the second one is the iconic, <laughs> completely iconic version of the giant holding the boulder, waiting for the chariot to approach. In the uh, canyon? In the canyon, yeah. Oh, I love that one. Uh, Yeah, so that's a full-color version for the first time, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think... I've never seen a color version of that one. No, uh, me either. So that was meticulously hand-colored. And by the way, doing it that way allows me to address subtle reflections and gradations in ways that these uh, computer programs that do colorizations just can't address, you know. So the manual effort is well worth it, in my opinion, even though it takes quite a bit longer. No, it's great. I love it. You know, and I, I'm, I'm actually a little surprised you said they were screen grabs because I have the series on my Apple TV thing on my computer and I'd pull up and I'd try to find that scene and they still looked a little different to me for some reason. I don't know if it was a camera angle or something, but it looked like, I don't know if you monkeyed around with them any more than that, but they're not quite exactly like screen grabs. I don't know if you changed the angles on them or something, but uh, I did in some cases. Yeah. Sometimes I will straighten out the perspective if I don't like it. I don't like Batman type angles. Okay. Yeah. So, no uh, Dutch angles, huh? No, uh, <laughs> no. So I'll do things like that. Uh, you know, I like the straight on view with the proper perspective. So some of those alterations are probably what you're talking about. Okay. That could be it. Neat, neat, neat. I hope you're enjoying our latest interview with our good friend, Ron Gross, as much as I am. Ron's artwork is a beautiful celebration of his talent and Lost in Space fandom. And that devotion really shines through when you listen to him. He's got more to share about his fabulous new book and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space artist and author Ron Gross. Well, we've been kind of dancing around it, but uh, here's the big ad that you did, which was really cool, and that's Chapter 6, which covers the lost sixth episode of the series, which was supposed to be titled Refuge of the Damned. Let me ask you this. Why did you feel it was important to add this story, which, by the way, that's something you kind of refrained from doing directly in the Monster Wax trading card set. So why was that important to you? Well, it was there in the Monster Wax trading card set, too, but it was kind of interspersed with other themes. With this particular project, I wanted it to remain canon until we got to that episode. But the reason for my interest in this was, <laughs> here we go again, talking mm. about that original 1965 promo that appeared. I think it started in August of 65 for telling the show. We had no idea at that time that all those scenes were from the unheard pilot, of course. It's obvious that's the case because there's no Dr. Smith or Robot. You know? Right. 
But at one of those scenes toward the end are the two aliens who uh, are spying on the Robinsons from the concealed vantage point. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only one who expected an episode based on that. I've talked to a lot of people who sure. patiently waited for that episode to uh, appear and it never did. Okay, closest thing we ever got was Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, which was kind of a variation on the makeup, kind of a restructured theme, but it wasn't that. Okay, yeah, well, it we... wasn't the indigenous aliens and the conflict with the giants in an ongoing, continuous story arc. It was a basically a one-off and a very good one, by the way. But mm-hmm. uh, nevertheless, people who watched the show when it first came on, after having seen that uh, promo a month before, kind of got screwed, <laughs> for lack of a better term, you know. Well, those aliens were everywhere except lost in space. You know, they were in the promo, they were on the lunchbox, the trading cards. Like, we've talked about this, but, you know, hey, where are they? (laughs) Right? Yeah, on the lunchbox, there was kind of a variation. They they colored the skin green, which, you know, I mean, if it's black and white and you have aliens, what are you going to do? You're going to make them green, right? Of course. Uh, Right. uh, But the trading card is the one that really pissed me off, if you don't mind my saying so, because uh, that was trading card number two of the top set called Aliens Are Listening. Mm. But this thing, we got a full frontal view, okay, with incredible detail. Come on, guys, where is this, you know? Trading cards didn't come out until the following year, by the way. I think they came out in the summer of 66, so it was almost a year. So anyway, there was a uh, mystery involving those aliens for so long. And then we got to the point where uh, sometime in the early 90s, a friend of mine showed me some copies he had of a set of photos that were recently taken of Paul Zestavich's pre-production artwork. Right. And the guy who took those photos is a mutual friend of ours, Mike Clark. Uh-huh. Okay. So there was a whole series of those drawings. And I've got two of them in the book, of course. Of course. Thanks to Mike. By the way... Uh, <laughs> Here's an interesting little tidbit about that. Uh, those images are online, okay? Yeah, I don't know that I've seen those online. That's interesting. Oh, okay. they're out there, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I knew who to go to to get high-resolution copies because I knew the guy who shot the original set of photos, and that was Mike. So he was very gracious in uh, coming through for me, and uh, that's why you see those in the book there. But uh, that is something that always bugged me, the fact that that was never resolved in the show. I mean, even uh, watching the episodes as a kid, the way they wrapped up episode five, that was originally intended to end the way the pilot did with the aliens popping up. Mm-hmm. And then at the last minute, they changed their minds and they did this hastened return to the Jupiter 2, which looked that way to me. I mean, even as a kid, and don't get me wrong, the editing was well done. It was professionally executed, but it seemed rushed, you know, and... Uh, I thought to myself at the time, well, if those aliens were ever going to be in the show, that's where they should have been. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. That's why I took it upon myself to kind of flesh this thing out and create a an episode six, which is a kind of a condensed version. And we'll probably get into that in a few minutes. But uh, the fundamental issue of the conflict between the giants and the illuminated ones is certainly addressed. And I think that's what's important. Yeah. Well, you kind of mentioned this earlier, talking about the story treatment springboard that was written for episode six. So it was an intended episode to complete the story arc. What did you use specifically to flesh out your version of Refuge of the Dam? Can you give me some examples of things that you were using? Well, I guess there were three elements in all. One was the springboard, Uh, even though I didn't follow it exactly, and I'll explain that in just a minute. The other two resources I had were, you know, references in the pilot script Mm -hmm. and personal conversations with Kevin. Ah, okay. Great. Because he's the one who told me, uh, no uncertain terms, that without the characters of Dr. Smith and the robot, the entire premise of the show was to be based on that mythology. Interesting. Yeah, with the Robinsons caught in the middle, quote unquote. But uh, if you think about it, Lane, uh, 
how many encounters could there really have been? I mean, that's the kind of fundamental basis that you would probably use in a miniseries or a movie, but in a TV series, you know, you begin to realize why they thought they had to expand the cast and add the, uh, the villain, if you will. Exactly. Well, so there's a little speculation involved here, but you do have some solid ground to stand on then, because I'm sure that it's a topic that Kevin had thought about a lot as well. And I have to say, I think you basically are taking a more or less a conservative approach with your version of Refuge of the Dam, but it is intriguing. I think there were some things that were in the springboard, actually, that you left out. Speak to that if you can. Oh, yeah. Well, the one big thing, of course, the springboard dealt with what I would call a compound uh, dual plot line. And the fundamental aspect of it I've already described. The other one was the discovery of another ship, a crash-landed ship from, quote, an earlier decade from Earth, no less. Mm. Now, what sense does that make, if you really think about it? We're in 1997. This Jupiter-2 is the latest and greatest piece of technology the Earth has to offer. And yet there is a crash ship from an earlier decade with a bunch of renegade criminals. Right. Kind of a weak premise, in my opinion. The reason for that was this. If the pilot had been aired in its original form, that episode would have been the second one. Mm -hmm. And the introduction of those villains would have been necessary for continuing uh, interaction and conflict. That was the whole point. Right. Now, after the uh, pilot is subdivided, that becomes episode six. But by that time, we've already got our villain, right? Right. I mean, Dr. Smith and the robot have already been cast in those roles to serve that purpose. So all of a sudden, the need for additional human antagonists is greatly diminished, if not eliminated. Yes. So I made a decision at that point to address only the fundamental aspect of the springboard and leave that out completely. Mm -hmm. Because it would have required too much speculation to flesh out those characters. There's enough information on the fundamental aspect of the uh, compound plot line where that's pretty safe. But to go any further would uh, kind of delve into the realm of not being as canon as I preferred. And I don't consider this to be canon in the same sense as the first five, by the way. I even put a disclaimer in there to that extent. Right, you do. Uh, But my derivations are still based on documented information. So... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with your approach because, and I've only read the very short, I think it's like two page long chapter in Mark Cushman's book about Refuge of the Dam. And as he describes it in there, it's way too complicated. It's kind of convoluted. There's way too many characters to service in one episode. So they had the springboard that Winselberg wrote, and then they actually handed it off to another writer, basically, who came in, I think his name was Herman Groves or something like that, and wrote a a further fleshed out treatment of it. And there were just a lot of reasons why at that point in production, they decided they didn't really want to go that direction. You know, so what you did with it, I think really kind of saved it. One of the main things that Cushman says is there was no Dr. Smith or robot in that episode per se, you know, in either the springboard or the treatment. You do add uh, Dr. Smith back in, which is another little yeah, point. Yeah, it's <laughs> brief, but it's there. I was very cognizant of that very fact, as a matter of fact. Interesting you should bring that up. I mean, yeah. it's a brief encounter. It's kind of cool. It's inserted in just the right place, but they are there. Okay. Right. So, and it's not that difficult to do. It's a kind of a natural evolution of the story as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And one of the big things you did, well, it's a little thing, but it was big to me, was there's a scene when the Robinsons finally do make it back just like they did at the end of The Hungry Sea when they finally make it back to the Jupiter 2, you fixed something in there. You fixed something in there. What was that? Well, this is something I noticed as a kid at age 11 when Dr. (laughs) Smith in his jumpsuit looks out the porthole and says, 
Robinson alive? Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> right. You know what? Seems to me I just saw that same scene two episodes ago. <laughs> right? right. Right. At the end of Island in the Sky. It was not just right. the same line. It was the same clip. <laughs> right. So another indication that something funny is going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, they clipped out that story, obviously. And that was another indication that that's where it should have been because that was just too rushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, to bring them back to the campsite at that point. Uh, by the way, I also, well, I think about it, I'll mention this. There's a scene in episode five at the very end where Will approaches Don about whether or not, uh, in fact, they almost got killed in the chariot. Yeah, with repairing the solar batteries. Allowed and... to realign the battery. Yeah. I've got that scene in my episode six, but it doesn't occur at the Jupiter 2. It occurs out in the jungle area, you know, continuity. continuity. But it makes more sense there. Oh, yeah, it does. It always felt a little awkward to have that scene back at the Jupiter 2 at the end of episode five. So I thought that was another nice touch that you had there. In the text, though, it says the Robinson's alive, not Robinson alive. That's right. That's right. I made the adjustment, even though I've got it verbatim in episode three, I modified it for (laughs) episode five. (laughs) That was great. uh, Excuse me. That's the end of episode six. Yeah, it's at the end of episode six. Yeah. No, but that always bothered me in, in The Hungry Sea when you see that clip again. I think it's got to be the first most obvious use of recycling that Irwin did. That, yeah. <laughs> and again, it's, clip. it's professionally edited. It's, oh, yeah. It's well done. It's well executed. But it's also very obvious, you know. I mean, if an 11-year-old kid can pick up on it, then, you know, that says it all, right? Exactly. There's one little thing I thought was kind of cute. Cushman points out that the title of this episode, Refuge of the Damned, he said, that would have never been allowed by CBS because you couldn't say yeah. the word damned on 1960s TV. So I'm going to ask you, Irwin liked to have his secretary redo titles, you know, like famously the cyclamen turned into Attack of the Monster Plants. If you had written this script and been told that CBS, you know, put the kibosh on Refuge of the Damned, what would you have titled it? I've got a couple ideas, but I... Oh, it's very, very easy. I've, I've thought about this, Wayne. I uh, think you should ask. Refuge of the Doomed. Hey, that's a good one. That is you know, a good one. Same uh, general intention. Uh, makes the statement properly, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, keep it all except the last few letters. Now, in your construction there, who are the doomed? Well, that would be the illuminated ones. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not the... of their ongoing situation. Yeah, that's their refuge. They're hiding out from the giants. I got it. Right. Yeah. Look, the story is somewhat simplistic, all right? I wanted to be conservative with that. I wanted to be safe. I didn't want to venture too far out on, on unexplored territory. But when we get to that part and the explanation occurs as to what's really going on between those two races, mm-hmm. how long it's been going on and the danger they're in going forward, I think that section is somewhat compelling. Right. Well, there's a lot of possibilities for titles. I think that's always fun. I like that Refuge of the Doomed. I was thinking maybe... How about you? What would well, you called it? Yeah, I had two thoughts. I think uh, I was going with your artwork titles because you're really good at naming your artwork. I was going with The Caves Have Eyes because I like that one. And the other one I thought would be kind of cool is just the illuminated ones. But maybe that's a little bit too much on the nose. I don't know. That's that's right up there with Attack of the Monster Plants, maybe. <laughs> you know, another title that would have been cool, the title I gave to another one of my posters, and I'll have to explain where this comes from, but one of my posters I titled Saintliness and Savagery. Right. Yes. You know, and that came from a line in a six-minute promo that was done by CBS to introduce the show to affiliate stations. The narrator described this race as the lurking sentries of a humanoid race whose culture is a strange blend of saintliness and savagery. How, how cool is that? How oh. can you not explore that theme with a description like that? <laughs> I mean, oh, I know. You know. 
I know. Uh, but they never did, you know. So if I had known about Refuge of the Damned at that point, when I did that poster, I might have named it that, you know, instead. Mm-hmm. But uh, saintliness and savagery, I think, works also. Oh, it's a great line, and it's just so evocative of the mood, you know, that those aliens conjure up, and the whole background story is really good. Yeah, it's right. it's funny. We didn't get to see those illuminated ones, as they're called, the pilot aliens, whatever you want to call them, in the show. But now we can see them in your book. But, you know, speaking of recycling, though, at least their costumes and their medallions and whatnot show up. And as you. Oh, yeah. 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 Isn't that interesting? They give the guy who was going to uh, do the screenplay for Refuge all of a sudden gave him another assignment. The same guy Mm -hmm. uh, for The Sky is Falling. And they used the same costumes, the same medallion. Everything except the headbands, I think. That was something new Mm -hmm. for uh, the aliens in the sky is falling. So very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, we'll leave the uh, listeners wanting more because, you know, I had to resist going right to chapter six when you sent me the PDF because I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was going to be in there. So I was, I was eager to. Well, there are only four that. acts in chapter six as opposed to six acts and then the other five chapters, but it still serves the intended purpose. It makes the statement that I wanted to in a safe and conservative and compelling way, I think, you know. That's great. So. Well, so ends the fourth and final edition of your wonderful novelization project, Ron, but not this book, right? Because you do add a few special support chapters at the end, starting with the epilogue. Right. And that's where, as you mentioned, you give the nod to several other season one episodes that you definitely deem worthy of honorable mention, don't you? Yes. And I thought that was important uh, because, look, it didn't end there. Those were the best of the best, in my opinion, the first five, or in my case, the first six. But there were many other episodes throughout the first half of season one and a couple sprinkled through the second half, even after the Batman influence took hold, uh, Mm -hmm. that I thought deserved to be acknowledged. So that's the basis for this chapter. Yes, sir. Yeah. We won't go through them all because the readers can dig into that. But you already talked about Invaders of the Fifth Dimension. In a way, that title was kind of another tease, wasn't it? We were kind of expecting those cerebral aliens to show up. Right. By the way, that was a name change. And the original title for that episode was Alas, Regardless of Their Doom. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, another episode that you talk about in there is Return from Outer Space, which is probably one of my favorite episodes from the first season. But the thing that... The thing, I I don't want to pick another scab, but... (laughs) (laughs) But I know you're going to. (laughs) But I'm going to. The thing I can't help but bring up is this fact that you mentioned that you actually missed seeing that episode during the first run broadcast. What happened? Well, you know what? If you live in Chicago, you get screwed. That's the way it is, right? (laughs) I was in the suburbs, but nevertheless. uh, Yeah, so the show's off the air for a couple of weeks, and we find out decades later it was because they ran behind, you know. So these young people's concert shows show up. And uh, all of a sudden, when the show is supposed to come back in Chicago, it's preempted for a third week. What? And I forgot what the reason for that was, but I was pissed. I got to tell you. Okay. I was so afraid. Here, uh, I was afraid you were going to tell me your dad made you watch the Virginian. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'm picking all the scabs yeah. I can today, Ron. I'm sorry. Well, look, he, he may have hogged the color TV for the Virginia, but he never forced me to watch it. So I'll have to give him credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I interrupted you. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, um, so you know, the last thing we saw before all the preemptions was the scene with Penny being whisked away in the Maser Beam, right? Yes. For the beginning of uh, Return from Outer Space. Well, when the TV guide came out and they described the Keeper, I thought that was how the Keeper grabbed his victims. Ah, 
Okay. Uh, he's borrowing technology from the Torans, right? Right. Then they show the keeper, and the introduction is totally different. Then I realized I got screwed. <laughs> There's another missing episode here. Now, in addition to the aliens I never saw, now this, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it probably took a while before you got to see it because, you know, they skipped a lot of those black and white episodes and repeats. I didn't see it till sometime in the 70s because, wow. you know, uh, when that show was syndicated, I'll tell you what happened. When the show was syndicated in Chicago, it was, I think, in 1970, and WGN got it, okay? Which, WGN is a total class act. I mean, they had the greatest kids shows and sports mm. broadcasters. They did everything right. But uh, when they got a hold of Lost in Space, they put it on Wednesday and Friday nights. And what they did was they played the first episode, Reluctant Stowaway. And yeah. the second airing was the first episode of the second season. And they totally blew off the rest of the first season. because What? Oh my and, gosh. And we didn't see that, I'm going to say, for another couple of years. Wow. So it might have been 72 before I actually saw that episode. Yeah, this is the era before home video was out or anything. So you basically had first run, maybe they did a summer repeat when it was on you know, a network broadcast, and then it was syndication, and you were at the mercy of what they wanted to program, right? That's how it worked back then. Yep. That's why if you didn't have a paper and pencil sitting at the TV set, drawing some of these things while it was on the air, then, you know, if you wanted to do something with it later, like I did, you were basically SOL, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, there's just one more episode I want to touch on from this epilogue, and that is Ghost in Space. And of course, that's one of my favorite episodes, too, from the first season. It's in that canon, so I'm glad you included that. But one thing you mentioned in there was that there was a special CBS promo spot for that episode. Yeah. And I've never seen that. What do you? I, well, this... you know, I, I haven't either since then, because I saw that on the first airing. I've never seen it since. Uh-huh. It's just something I remembered. Okay. And I was in the living room. I'll never forget this. My dad was not watching The Virginian because that's on a different network. Right. <laughs> he must have been tuned into CBS because all of a sudden this promo comes up saying in the next episode of Lost in Space. And they had an image of what I seem to remember as the, the ghost creature hovering over the ship. Mm. Okay. And it was just a, like a, you know, just a few seconds, maybe 15, 20 seconds at most. And they did that from time to time, advertising their upcoming shows. But this one stuck out in my mind because I don't recall another one for Lost in Space other than this. I could be wrong about that. Uh-huh. Uh, that stuck in my mind, and uh, that's the way it was. And if somebody can come up with that or an image uh, based on that promo, I'd love to see it. But that's where it came from. Yeah, because when I read that in your book, I went back and pulled out my Blu-rays. And they have a few of those things in the special features, and I didn't see anything like that in there. So it was really kind of anything like that is intriguing to me. I love that right. stuff. So it was an image of the ghost creature, the monster, the bog monster, whatever you want to call him, hovering over the Jupiter 2. Is that like an artist's rendition, or was it just like a collage of photos? What, what do you like remember? It like a collage of uh, actual footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I, you know, I looked up for a few seconds and saw it, and that's all it was, Lane. So I could be wrong about that. Oh. I'll bet you I know somebody else who might have remembered it if he were still with us, and that's Kevin. Oh, I bet you're right. But uh, the way you describe it, though, Ron, I got to say that sounds like the making of a good poster. But I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like the thought of it anyway. So okay, that's very cool. Wow. Well, you've been very careful in your illustrated novelization to utilize references that qualify as canon, like you said. But in another support chapter, you do leave some room for speculations, don't you? You know why I did that chapter, Elaine? Because I did all those posters based on those speculative themes, and they're tied to those first five episodes, although they're not canon. I mean, they are speculative. And I wanted to find a way to utilize those. So I did this section called uh, Speculations. 
you know, what if this happened? What if that happened? And so that's what that's all about. My devotion has always been to those early episodes. And I did a number of speculative posters based on those themes that don't quite fit the novel, but I want to find a way to utilize those also. Well, I'm glad you did, because again, some of those are some of my favorite of your artworks. I really and like And one that. of them is The Caves Have Eyes. You know, right. I had to find some excuse to get that in there because it's the bad cover. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, I want to mention one of them in particular. We touched on it before I said I was going to come back to this, and that was There Were More Giants in the Earth, which, as you said, was inspired by that box art for the Mattel Rotojet gun. I'm very jealous because I wanted that one, but I didn't get that one for Christmas one year. So I've always been jealous, but that has some really cool box art. You actually include an image of that at the end, some bonus images. So I love that box art though. Do we know who actually painted that? Do you have any clue? No, I looked into that lane. I I don't know. Uh, I will tell you this though, of all the Lost in Space artwork I've ever come across, including the Aurora model kits, that piece is my all-time favorite. Is it? Yes. You know, I didn't care that much about the toy. Heck, I was 12 years old at Christmas. I wanted that artwork, you know? Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of a whole colony of giants attacking the family, exploring that theme on a higher level compared with what we ever saw on the show, you know, uh, that just hit the right chord with me. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I... They only show two giants, but the angles of the guns and everything, and I tried to emulate this in my recreation also, the angles of the guns imply that there are a lot more of them. Uh, so they're surrounded by these things. And my God, what a great statement of what the show could have been. And I'm reluctant to say it like that because it was a great show overall, regardless. But um, there were so many themes I think they could have explored more. And that's certainly one of them. You know, what stands out to me in that box art is the way that the giants are actually visualized. They're extremely yeah. scary looking. I mean, there's the sort oh, of, no. yeah. I mean, your version, of course, is the, you know, realistic version as we saw on screen, which is also kind of scary. But these things are Oh, man, they're almost too scary to be on a kid's toy, if you ask me. They're they're pretty ghoulish. I really thought about that when I did the artwork. Do I want to emphasize this? Do I want to stylize it? Do I want to, you know, exaggerate that aspect of it just a little bit? I decided not to, but I almost regret that because I agree with you. That is a very, very compelling representation. You know, it's something that just sticks in your mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, it absolutely does. That's great. Well, I'm glad you included that in the book. That's really neat. Um, I like how in that chapter titled Technicals and Trivia, you filled in some remaining details about the initial story arc that over the years sparked both confusion and debate among fans and casual viewers alike. One example would be the evolving design of the Jupiter II. Right. Enlighten us on that piece of uh, technical trivia, if you will. Okay. First of all, I'll mention the blueprints I have on the left side of the page before that section starts. Those are 30-year-old blueprints. Mm. And I looked at those and I thought, should I use these or not? You know, They're great. I drew those all those years ago and I thought to myself, they're not perfect, but they still make the statements that I want to make and it's close enough. So I went ahead and did it. But here again, we show the bottom two representations are the uh, Gemini 12 versus the eventual Jupiter 2 hero miniature. You got to remember that when the show was first conceived, uh, well, the ship was conceived as a one-level design. And it's just a vehicle to get them to the planet. And then it was going to be mostly discarded. Most of the adventures were going to be taking place outside of the chariot. Mm-hmm. And they would always have the option of going back there. But it wasn't an integral part of the series as it eventually became. But when they added the characters of Smith and the Robot and started to flesh out the overall uh, plot line, it became obvious that that wouldn't fly. They'd have to convert this to a two-level design. 
And, you know, that's a stretch because, you know, nothing fits properly. So it becomes a matter of just, you know, having your imagination fill in the blanks. Right. Uh, I mean, they did, with the Jupiter 2 miniature, they did uh, make it a little bit bulkier. The lower deck is slightly extended. The windows are a lot smaller, which gives the impression of a larger space, that sort of thing. So they did a number of things to aid in that cause, to lead one in that direction. But careful measurements disclose that it still can't hold two decks. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, they had to employ a lot of modifications for the interior, uh, full scale of the uh, Gemini 12. If you have a lower deck, you have to have an elevator and you have to move that wall with all the, uh, candy and nuts and all that stuff uh, to the lower level, right? Correct. Uh, then they did something that a lot of people missed this, but, uh, take a look at the, uh, freezing tubes. Okay. One time there was a kind of a ridge on the floor, a step up. Yeah, you it was know. like an elevated platform, almost slightly elevated. It was, and that was eliminated. And I had read somewhere a long time ago that was done to facilitate the robot, uh, make it easier for him to navigate, ah. probably for the scene when he tries to destroy the ship, you know. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I had to extend the top of the freezing tube. That's why there are differences in those scenes. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, isn't it, though? So you know, when it came time to uh, creating the uh, first five episodes from the pilot, there are scenes that go back and forth. You have the original set design and the new one, but it's so seamlessly executed that uh, unless you're looking for it, you don't really notice. No, no. Certainly you wouldn't notice on TV sets of that era, you know, but of course nowadays we're analyzing everything with a fine tooth comb and these things become uh, more obvious, but it was very well done overall. Absolutely, absolutely. I like how you mentioned also that, you know, as far as technical issues, so to speak, the whole idea of the crazy climate changes that the planet went through because of the orbit and everything, uh, it's a problem. You know, the climate's not going to change that quickly. I mean, you could have a non-circular orbit of a planet, but it's not going to change that quick. But, you know, to me, a bigger problem And you kind of have that in Lost in Space, really. I think people just kind of tend to fire and forget with some of these episodes. But you've got a bit of a continuity problem you've just established for future episodes if you don't continually show the climate changing, you know? Um, Well, they did through the Oasis. We talked about it. Yeah, they did. That was episode nine, I think. Kind of. You're totally correct, Lane. You're totally right about that. But the reason why I put that section in there about scientific inaccuracies was for one reason. And that is, somebody's going to pop up and say, if this show is as good as you claim it was, then what about this, this, and this, right? So it's a disarming gesture. Right. Because I'm concluding that section by saying, in spite of all that, you know, this is a very, very compelling show. And I talk a little bit about the music scores at the very end and Mm -hmm. and how it augments the uh, atmosphere. And by the way, other science fiction shows were no angels either. No. There are all tons of discrepancies in Star Trek and you name it. There are. So uh, so that was a deliberate disarming event for somebody who might, because there's always somebody, you know. (laughs) Well, I'll say this. At least in those early episodes, they were sort of trying to make it plausible, if not exactly scientifically accurate. They at least offered you explanations for things, whether or not they would hold up to what we know about, you know, astrophysics and everything else today is another story. We'll go back and listen to my episode with the uh, <laughs> with the astronomy professor. He'll, right. he'll fill you all in on that. So, But that doesn't take away from the enjoyment and the entertainment value. Um, one thing, though, you have some beautiful uh, shots that I think you got from Bill Hedges of his recreations of the, yes. the alien dead city. That's really great that you included those in there, because as someone who's gotten to see that in person, that is really like Disneyland for Lost in Space fans. It's cool. Well, a big shout out to Bill. He was a big help to me throughout the novelization, too. I would 
message him on Facebook if I had a question about a script that he might have had that I didn't have. Always got right back to me. Big shout out to Bill and to uh, Mike Clark, of course. And uh, of I got an image of their recreation of the crash landing in there, too. Absolutely. Uh, it was Paul Lubliner. Of course, then you and Kurt. A uh, big shout out to you guys. So you all helped tremendously with the project, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for that. I don't think I did very much, but... Uh, well, you're my... definitely right now. You're doing a podcast with me, so that counts. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just fun for me, so it's definitely not a chore. But sadly for us, Ron, as the saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And you speak to that in the last chapter you title Conclusions. As you say, it's uh, it's satisfying, but it's also bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in the back of your mind, you always think you're going to return to it and you know revert to your childhood ways again. And when you get to be an adult, all the responsibilities involved with that, you have to have an excuse to do that. So this being licensed and qualified to do it in those respects, that was my excuse. Right. And I consider this to be the fourth and final incarnation of that original project. Uh, first three, I treasure very highly, of course, but this is the final chapter, if you will. So, uh, yeah, like mm. you said, all good things, but that's the way it is. Yeah. Well, I think the background story to me is almost as good as the book itself. It is another example of something that was a passion of yours being turned into a reality, and I think that's so cool. And we finally get the mystery of those pilot aliens addressed and resolved by you, no less. <laughs> and I get to do it. Yeah. So. What's not to love about that? <laughs> 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 I love it. I love it. Wow. Yeah, what a kick that is. You know, as an 11-year-old, you know, I was a pretty quiet kid. I kind of kept to myself to think back then that I would ever be the one to finally wrap that up. But, you know, nature takes its course, and this is what we have, and uh, couldn't be happier about it. I think I know one person who would have been almost as happy about this as you, and that's Kevin Burns. I think he probably would have. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin was a year younger than me, but we grew up with it. I didn't know him then, of course, but we had many conversations on the phone. And, you know, speaking of that episode list that I considered to be of comparable quality after the first five, we agreed on every single one of those except one, and that was Ghost in Space. He didn't care for that one. Really? Yeah, I don't know why, but uh, our uh, choice of episodes was pretty much as uh, much in sync as it could possibly be. Yeah. Well, I'm on team uh, gross in that contest, so anyway. Did you notice uh, that my preferences usually involve episodes that did not have human characters that spoke perfect English? Ah, the only exception being the keeper, and there was an explanation for that. But when we were still at the stage of the mystery and foreboding aspect of the show, the solitude, the isolation on the planet, you know, that was when I thought it was the best. Mm -hmm. So any episode that emphasizes that aspect of it uh, would get my vote. It's interesting you bring that up, and I should have mentioned this when we were talking about the Netflix thing, because I think that's another element of the classic original Lost in Space that somewhere just kind of got missed in the Netflix reboot. I know. I know. I talked to Kevin about that, too. He said that interaction was necessary. He probably came back from the marketing research. Who knows? Yeah. That, and that's another reason why I didn't want to include the uh, extra human characters from Refuge of the Damned. I mean, we don't need to violate that feeling of solitude and mystery and foreboding that early. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a kind of a cool aspect of those early episodes. Yeah. So well, I'm glad that uh, I made that choice. Well, I'm going to round this out like I always do. Your lifelong project with this book is now complete. Uh, and I know you're sometimes a little tight-lipped about future projects, Ron. But in this case, is there anything else you can share <laughs> with the audience that you have on the horizon? Or is the Ron Gross oeuvre of Lost in Space projects also now complete? No, 
I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I won't evade the question like I did the last time. And okay. I'm not sure I chose to evade it. It certainly sounded that way, but I didn't know quite what to say because I had this one project in the back of my mind that I wanted to at least postpone. That's still a possibility, by the way, doing the coloring book. Um, mm-hmm. But let me describe something that I was going to do that I decided that I couldn't do. Okay. I was considering doing larger versions of selected posters. Ah, okay. Until I discovered that it is simply not economically feasible. They have to use a different kind of printer for that, and uh, the cost would be prohibitive uh, for what I'm doing anyway. So that probably isn't going to happen. So then I thought to myself, what am I going to do then? Because i got to be honest with you. There's a poster I'm putting out on Wednesday. We're recording this on a Monday, which means it'll already be out by the time this is aired. Uh It's called The Final Battle. And it was named that way for a reason, because that was going to be my final poster. Not to say that I was going to disappear. There are other projects, okay? Okay. Other things that that may spark my interest. But this would be the 45th poster. That's a lot. That is. But then I thought to myself, okay, if I can't do the larger versions, what am I going to do? And then I thought, you know, in my first book, I talked about this whole series that I did that had never been seen before called Remote Viewer Art. Right. And I'll explain briefly what they are. They're uh, compositions that involve one of two perspectives, either observation through the time tunnel or scrutiny from the vantage point of invaders from the fifth dimension mm-hmm. with their view screen. And these are all highly speculative and basically based on fantasy, but they're kind of cool. Well, I've put out six of those already as posters, which leaves a bunch more. Mm -hmm. So I think we may just expand on that and uh, give those some more attention. So that's what you can expect in the near future. Great. Well, you know, I think that's a perfect note, Ron, to end this conversation on. But before we go, let's remind folks where they can order the book. And I think you've already taken orders, certainly by the time that this interview is published orders have been taken and whatnot. Uh, When can people expect for the books to ship and fill us all in on that stuff? Okay. First of all, let me say unequivocally that I don't like taking pre-orders. I don't like the idea of taking people's money if I can't deliver product on the spot. But with the Amazon system the way it is, if I want to offer a little bit of a discount and an incentive of doing a personalization, I'm stuck with you know playing by their rules. Mm-hmm. So I had to do the pre-orders. And uh, at this point, I'm told that my, quote, author copies will arrive between May 3rd and 5th, which is from this date, it's about a week away. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. At that point, I'll fill all the orders I have on a first come, first served basis. So that's what to expect. In fact, I just put out a post on Facebook to that extent to update my customers uh, yesterday. Cool. And then other than that, Amazon's the best place to order it going forward, correct? Especially if you're not in the United States. It's the only way to get it. Yeah, because I'm not doing international shipping. The costs for tracking are just off the scale. Absolutely. Again, something that's just not economically feasible. So sure. But the offsetting plus to doing it on Amazon is that they have worldwide marketability. And you know, if you're in Australia or England or anywhere else, you can order the books. So you can get it that way. There you go. And we know uh, there's lots of Lost in Space fans and Australia, for example, and I see from our downloads on the podcast, we got a lot of friends in Europe that appreciate the show as well. So that's very cool. Now, another thing I want to mention real quickly, and I'm sorry to be so greedy with your time, is uh, you do plan on being at Wonderfest, which is we record, it's only like five weeks away from now. Yeah. So, and mm-hmm. uh, you'll probably have some books with you there. That's the plan right now. Great. If something happens to screw it up. <laughs> I shouldn't think like that, but you know, last year they lost my luggage, so anything can happen, right? <laughs> well, anything can happen, but that's the plan. That'll be cool. I had a great time. That's the plan, right? Yeah, I had a great time visiting with you and the rest of the gang, Phil Hamilton and Tom Doherty, all the 
all the big Lost in Space uh, aficionados were there, and I think they're going to recreate that. Maybe, and I think even Marta's coming back. So that, oh, uh, yes, she is. That's something if people are in the Louisville area or can make time to go down there, I think that's cool. I'm not sure if I'll be able to make it this year. Sorry to say that, but uh, I'm still working on that. So we'll see what happens. So anyway, wow, Fair that's enough. great. Well, Ron, I'm just so proud for you about this new book, and I know it's going to be another big success, another feather in your cap. So we're going to link to your website. We'll put your Amazon page up on the show notes, all that stuff. And I suppose other than that, Facebook's probably the best place to keep up with you, right? Right. I'd say so. Right. And my website too, uh, that's where you can order the book if you want a signed version. Uh, The pre-order period with a little discount I was offering is over, but you can still do that there, of course. But any announcements will be on the Facebook page for the most part. Yeah, that's true. Great. Outerportals.com. It's a beautiful website. You should check it out regardless. All kinds of previews of your beautiful artwork there. So that is great. Well, thanks. Ron, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I can't thank you enough for making time to talk to me today. Always a pleasure, Lane. Uh, Indeed, always a pleasure. It's a lot of fun for me. Same for me. All right. Take care, my friend. Thank you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with our good friend, Ron Gross again. Check out his fantastic new book at OuterPortals.com using the link in the show notes below. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control to celebrate our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.